We're continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus speaks one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament to understand. He says, speaking to Peter and the rest of the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, Matthew 16, 19 is the, uh, one of the proof texts that's used by the Roman Catholic Church to defend the teaching that F- Peter was the first pope. They teach that Jesus essentially gave uh, Peter the keys and put him in charge. Uh, that, that argument fails for a number of reasons. But the reason that that argument is made in the first place is because what Jesus says here is so remarkable. It's so significant. Uh, Jesus came at the very outset preaching the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the message John preached. It was the message Jesus preached. He announced its inauguration. He said in Matthew chapter 20, the fact that I am doing these miracles and casting out demons means the kingdom of heaven is now among you. And so for him to say that he was giving Peter the keys in any way, in any sense, is really remarkable. And we need to carefully understand it. The scriptures tell us what he means. There's no great mystery. It simply takes time and care. And we're going to uh, take a little bit of time and give it the care this morning it requires. I want to talk about to whom Jesus gave the keys and what the keys of the kingdom are, and then I want to talk about what he meant by binding and loosing, and then what that means for us today. So to begin with, given to whom? I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Now he's speaking to Peter, but let's understand the context. Going back to verse 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. Caesarea Philippi was in the northern part of Israel. The city of Caesarea Philippi sat at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, I believe, is the Mount of Transfiguration. He would take his men up at, at the start of chapter 17. So he's, he's moved them out of Galilee, which was predominantly Jewish, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is actually within the region of Batanea, which is predominantly Gentile, to a Gentile city in order to, to remove them out of the, the fishbowl of Galilee and to have private time with them. As he does that, then he asks his disciples who the people say that he is, and his disciples tell him what they've been hearing from people. He then says, but who do you say that I am? And he asks that question of all 12, of all 12. Peter answers for the group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says that Peter 
is, is, has been blessed by God because flesh and blood did not reveal this, but God who is in heaven revealed it. And I don't think it was just Peter who got that. Jesus asked the disciples the question. Peter answered for the rest. I think that they all, with the exception of Judas, understood that. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus talks about building his church. And he distinguishes between Peter as a rock and the rock upon which he will build his church. The rock, I believe, is the confession that Jesus is the Christ, of the son of the living God, that Jesus is both God and man. As the Christ, he is the prophet, priest, and king, the savior. As the son of God, he is God in human flesh, God, in human, God incarnate. That, that truth, that revelation of who Jesus is, is the foundation of the church. It's represented in the scriptures that come through the apostles and the prophets. And that's what Jesus will build his church on. And so Matthew 6:19 is a continuation of that discussion with the disciples. And while he speaks personally to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, he's already spoken to Peter twice about things that don't have to do with Peter specifically. Blessed are you when it was the, the all of those who are blessed. And my father's not revealed this to, or my father has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. And I will not build my church on you as individuals, but upon the truth of who I am. So I, I believe that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven while it's spoken personally to Peter ultimately applies to the apostles. And in fact, I think it applies to every believer. It applies to the church in general ultimately as the gospel unfolds. So what are the keys that Jesus is going to give? Uh, keys unlock doors. Keys unlock doors. Keys unlock things. Keys relock things. Uh, but the keys that Jesus are not talking about are not the doors to heaven. It's not that at, at the entrance to heaven are these massive gates, these massive doors, and they've got a huge key or keys, and, and Jesus is going to take his key ring and give it to Peter and the apostles so that they can go and lock the doors. He tells us what he means when he says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So the, the keys to the kingdom are not keys to a door. They're keys to shackles. They're keys to chains. They're keys to things that enslave us that keep us bound. They're the keys that free us. So what is it in Scripture that God says enslaves mankind? It's not a hard question to answer. Proverbs 5.22 says about the wicked, his own iniquities will capture him who is the wicked one, and with the cords of his sin he will be held fast. We're enslaved by sin. We're enslaved by our sin nature. Second Peter says of the wicked, and, and reading these words this week, uh, numerous times it, they remind me of this current move to indoctrinate school children into homosexuality and transgenderism. Listen to these words. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by sensual lusts of the flesh. That's what's happening in schools. Those who barely escaped from the ones who conducted themselves in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves by corruption, or slaves of corruption. For by, what a, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 
The homosexual movement, the transgender movement, is promising people freedom. You have the freedom to be yourself. They're enslaving people. They're enslaving people to sin, and it's because they themselves are enslaved. Jesus himself says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So there it is. A sinner, by definition, is a slave to sin. He's a slave to his own nature. Sinners don't sin simply out of choice, but because it's their nature to sin. What about free will? Well, you have to understand the word free in the proper way. Sinners are free. They are free to act within their nature. They're not free to act apart from their nature. A fish is free to swim. It's not free to walk. A bird is free to fly, but elephants are not free to fly. They're bound by their nature. Sinners are bound by their nature. If it's their nature to sin, they are only free to, to sin. They are not free to deny their own nature. So the chains that we see in Scripture are the chains of sin that bind us to sin and death and Satan and our own fallen nature. Freedom, then, in Scripture is freedom from sin. The, the, the bigger passage in John 8 Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you know that you're in bondage to sin, hearing that there's freedom will thrill your heart. It will give you hope. It will, it will give you the hope that there's peace and that there's an answer. They answered him, we are Abraham's seed and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. I find that to be really interesting. They claim to be the children of Abraham. God told Abraham, your descendants will be slaves in Egypt. And they were. They were freed from Egypt by the Lord. They were brought into the promised land. For 400 years, they were ruled by judges. They repeatedly fell into idolatry. And every time they fell into idolatry, God brought in a pagan nation to oppress them, which involved some degree of slavery. God finally granted them the monarchy. The kingdom was split because of Solomon's sin into the northern and southern kingdom. And the kings of the north, all of the kings of the north, and many of the kings of the south brought the people into idolatry, which brought in yet more slavery. They were eventually carted away to Babylon, where they were held as slaves. They were finally freed from Babylon by the mercy of God. But when they were freed from Babylon and could go back to Israel, they were then under the thumb of the Assyrian Empire. They were never independent again. When Alexander the Great conquered the Assyrians, they were then under the domination of the Greeks. When Alexander died, primarily four of his generals, there were more, but primarily four of his generals, divvied up the vast territory he'd conquered. And Israel came under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So it's, it's ironic these men say we are Abraham's seed and we've never been slave to anyone when they've spent the majority of their history as slaves. But they won't acknowledge that. That's not quite what Jesus means, though. How is it that you say, they, they ask him, you will become free? 
But Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. See, sin doesn't only bind us, it also blinds us. They were blind to the fact that they were slaves. Inevitably, by the way, those who most need to be set free are the most who seem to be those who are the most offended at the offer of freedom. Jesus will set you free from your sin. This is a test. You can do this anywhere. Go up to the average person on the street and say to them, Jesus will set you free from their sin, from your sin. The more bound they are by their sin, the angrier they will become. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, everyone without exception. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. What does that mean? They live in the house of God. They live within his creation. And a day is coming where those who are slaves, when those who are wicked, will be removed from creation. They will be removed and cast into the lake of fire. The sons, however, those who have been born again as children of God, will be made free by the Son of God, and then they will be free indeed. So the Bible says that we are enslaved by sin and we are only freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are only freed by the work of Christ. And we must be freed. Nobody is born free. In spite of what the song says, nobody is born free. Now, slavery and freedom are are incompatible. And this is such an important thing because so many Christians would say, uh, I can't help my sin. It's not something I have control over, and that's just not true. If you're a Christian, John writes, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. So the person who says I'm a Christian, but they simply live in sin, they're living according to a sinful nature. They're not a believer. They're lying when they claim to be a believer. Romans 6, 20 and 22, there's these two phrases. Paul says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. So there's a binary solution set. There's only two options. Somebody is either a slave to sin and Satan or they're a slave to God. Those who are slaves of sin and Satan, they're free of righteousness. They're free of God. They're not free from God because he remains the judge. But they live free of God. I look at things, and, and I, I've talked to other people who look at things in the news, and they, they say things like, we say things like, how can they do those things and not know how wrong it is? Because they're free of God. They're free of righteousness. God has no claim on them, they think. Righteousness has no claim on them. They're accountable for that. The scriptures don't say that Christians never sin. It says Christians are no longer slaves of sin. And so a Christian who says something like, I was tempted and I gave in, is telling the truth. A Christian who says something like, I didn't have any choice, is lying. Or poorly educated, poorly taught, poorly taught. So the keys of the kingdom bind and loose. Just to summarize this. There's only two spiritual states. One is to be a slave of sin and free from God and righteousness. The other is to be a slave to God and his righteousness 
and be free from sin. And the keys of the kingdom are what, what either bind us in our sin or free us from our sin. So that leads me to conclude that the keys of the kingdom are the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel frees people from sin. How does the gospel bind people in, in their sin? Because Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Amen. Jesus says, uh, because you have rejected me, I have said, you will die in your sins. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But the, if the Son sets you free, you're a slave. The gospel binds people. We want to think of the gospel as being good news, and it is good news for those who receive it, but the gospel is bad news for those who reject it because it answers both sides of the equation. Now, Jesus talks about binding and loosing, and in the New American Standard, in the, the leg, New Legacy Version, it, the, the phrasing is odd. The phrasing is odd. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It sounds like a future past. Shall future have been past. And I don't, I don't want to beat you up with Greek grammar, but just a little bit's kind of necessary. It's a perfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb describes an action that is full and complete and has ongoing effects. The best example that I know of this is in Matthew chapter 4, although it happens all over the place. Matthew chapter 4, chapter four Jesus is being tempted by the tempter. And what is the answer three times? It is written. That's a perfect verb. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't say it was written? That would have been true. Back in Moses' day, it was written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It was written. That would be true. But he uses a perfect verb. It is written. It was written in history. It remains written today. It'll be written tomorrow. It was written by Moses, and now it remains. Do you understand how that works, that perfect verb? verb works so when jesus says bound and loosed in heaven he uses the perfect tense shall be bound shall be loosed is easier will be bound will be loosed is easier it's not as clumsy but neither is it as accurate and it, it might lead somebody to think the work begins on earth and then it's it's fulfilled in heaven or matched in heaven that I do the loosing and because I do the loosing then God is obligated to follow my lead when Jesus is actually saying the opposite is taking place when Peter says when he says to Peter you lose somebody and when you lose somebody they shall have been loosed in heaven you're announcing something that's already taken place in the heavenly places. When you bind somebody, they shall have been bound in heaven. What happens on earth through the apostles and through the church when we follow the teachings of Scripture and follow the gospel is simply a reflection of what God has already done in the heavenly places. Let me show you two examples of this. The positive example of loosing is on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Luke writes, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They didn't pierce themselves. 
This is the work of the Holy Spirit, to convict them of their sin and to show them exactly their state. But that also means, biblically, that they have been made alive and aware of their need. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what shall we do? Peter answers them this way, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. But notice he now defines all. All who are far off means as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So it's not all without exception. It's all without distinction. It's all kinds of people. But they have to be called, effectually called by God. Peter says repent and be baptized. Why doesn't he say believe? They've already believed. They don't know who to believe. They need to be pointed to Jesus. But they've already believed. They know that they're sinners. They know that there's a need. And he sends them in faith to Jesus. And these words essentially are binding and loosing. Peter promises that they will be loosed from their sins. You will be forgiven. And he promises that, in a sense, they will be bound to the Lord Jesus in eternal life. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, since we're here, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. There's no second statement. There's no second blessing. There's no additional. If you're in Christ, you have all of the Spirit you can get. The question is whether the Spirit has all of you and whether you're walking in the Spirit and whether you're being filled with the Spirit, which means to be controlled by him and led in living in holiness and righteousness. Peter looses them. On the basis of their faith, they need to repent and be baptized, and he can assure them on that basis of forgiveness and of new life and eternity in Christ because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We see the opposite take place in Acts chapter 8. It's, it's a lengthy passage. I'm not going to re- read all of it to you. So to summarize, to get there, Philip the deacon went to Samaria to preach the gospel. The Spirit of God worked miracles through him to confirm the word he was preaching. The people were astounded. Among the people who were astounded by what he did was a man named Simon. Simon was a magician. Simon had astounded the people of Samaria by his magic. In fact, the people of Samaria called Simon the great power of God. Simon saw what Philip was doing, and he believed. We're not told what that means. We're simply told that he believed and was baptized. When uh, the apostles in Jerusalem heard that, that people were coming to Christ and being baptized, they sent Peter and John to Samaria to lay hands on them, uh, to impart the Holy Spirit to them. Here's another parenthetical statement. There's only four times in the the book of Acts that we see the Holy Spirit come upon people. It's a different group each time. The Spirit of God only comes on Jews one time in Acts 2. He only comes comes upon Samaritans one time in Acts 8. He only comes upon God-fearing Gentiles one time in Acts 10. And he only comes upon true pagans one time, and I think it's in Acts 21 or 22. That's the only time, and it's to demonstrate that the same giving of the Spirit is for each one. 
We never read about the people who came to Christ after Pentecost, the next day, the Jews who believed, that they received some sudden baptism in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came at new life for them. So Peter and John are laying hands on the Spirit to impart the Holy Spirit. The sign of that would have been the same sign as it was in Acts 2. They began to speak in foreign languages that they knew. Not some gibberish tongues, but human languages. When Simon saw that, he went to Peter and John and tried to buy the the ability to give the Holy Spirit to other people. This is what Peter says. May your silver perish with you. Simon's going to perish. He's under the judgment of God. Because you supposed you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter. See what's happening around you? You've got nothing to do with it, and it has nothing to do with you. You're completely outside Christ. This work that's taking place as people are believing and being born again and being baptized in the Spirit's got nothing to do with you. You're completely separate from it. Your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter doesn't promise him forgiveness. Because he doesn't know if the Lord will forgive him. But he won't be forgiven if he doesn't confess and repent. He knows that. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. Does Simon respond like a genuine believer with faith at this? No. Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you said may come upon me. That might sound humble, but it's not. It's unbelief. Peter, the apostle, urges him, pray earnestly to the Lord, that if possible, your heart may be forgiven. And Simon says, no, you pray for me. Peter says, repent of this wickedness for me, uh, repent of this wickedness of yours. And Simon says, no, you can repent for me. Now, we always have to take church history with a little bit of a grain of salt, especially when they, they talk about biblical figures. But in the second century and the third century, uh, quite a few church writers, Polycarp, Irenaeus, uh, Hippolytus, they wrote about Simon. One of them says Simon then began to say that he was the Christ. And he ended up in the city of Rome leading a cult. And not long before his death, he told his disciples, you'll know that I'm the Christ because after I die, I'll rise on the third day. And I don't know if you've read the news, but he did not rise on the third day. So again, using that picture of binding and loosing, Simon has said that he believed and he was baptized, but then he evidences that he is unregenerate. And Peter binds him to his sin. You are still in your sin. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to pray earnestly. You are still trapped in the gall of bitterness and in bondage to unrighteousness. You're not in Christ. In each of these cases, Peter just announces what was already true 
in the heavenly places and which was manifested on earth. So those who confess Christ on the day of Pentecost could be assured of their forgiveness and of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And those who denied and reject Christ, including Simon, can be equally assured you remain under the judgment of God. You remain dead in your sins. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus speak of, of binding and loosing on earth what has already been bound, what has already been loosed in heaven? Why is this emphasized in this way? I think the answer is found in verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was the Christ. You see, Jesus never gave up the keys. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but he didn't give them up. He retained authority. He retained full control over all creation, including over the souls of men and women. Now think about this. As I've been saying, uh, this is taking place about six months before the crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection. Seven months, seven and a half months away from Pentecost. There's six or seven months to go. People are going to be dying between that day Jesus spoke these words and when, when finally on the day of Pentecost, his apostles are giving, given the clearance now to preach Christ. People are dying. And now his apostles have this news. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Taking a modern sensibility, why didn't Jesus immediately send those men out to spread that news? He's sovereign. It was not his good pleasure to do so. Those people between this day and the day of Pentecost would die without hearing the gospel. If their faith was in God, Jesus' death would cover them as it covered David, as it covered Abraham, as it covered Moses, as it covered Nebuchadnezzar. But they, they, they were not going to receive the gospel. The truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, was to be kept a secret until Jesus was pleased to say to his men, now. Now you can talk and don't stop. Now you can tell them and don't shut up. Keep telling them. And so what we see with binding and loosing and the keys of the kingdom is Jesus saying, I am in control. I'm in charge. You'll do my will. It's not that in binding and loosing on earth, God is then obligated to honor Peter's will or my will. It's that binding and loosing on earth is honoring God's will. So obviously, we don't simply walk up to a, a stranger on the street and say, I bind you in your sins. Or I loose you from your sins. We respond to somebody's response to the gospel. Think about this as we bring this home. It's a tremendous privilege. If you share Christ with somebody, whether it's one time and over a series of dialogues and conversations, and, and you discover that they've trusted in Christ, that they've put their faith in him, that they're leaning on him, you can look at them straight in the eye with full confidence and say, I can assure you of your forgiveness, that you have been joined with Christ, that you cannot lose him. Now, there's a condition on that. Their faith has to be genuine. 
But it's not, it's, it's not our job to determine whether their faith is genuine. I cast about in my mind trying to figure out a way to illustrate this to make it very clear. And I finally arrived at this one. It's, it's the best one that I could come up with. If you think of a better one, I'm open. If you go to the store and write a check, you give the check to the cashier, the cashier gives you your goods, and you take the goods and go. And anybody would say, that belongs to you now. Well, what if your check bounces? Well, they're not good anymore. They're not yours anymore, are they? You either have to give the goods back or you have to give them the money. Well, what if, what if somebody writes a bad check and the check bounces and then the, the store manager or the police call and say, your check bounced, you owe the money. What if that person said, no, 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 no. I gave her a check. She gave me the goods. The transaction was done. That, that doesn't fly. If you check the arrest reports, you'll see frequently people who are arrested for passing bad checks. That's a crime. The fact that a cashier took a, took a check on good faith doesn't equal the payment. It still has to clear. But what's that got to do with this? When, when you tell someone based on their faith and their confession that you can assure them of forgiveness, you're assuming that their faith is real. You're assuming that the check is good. If it turns out in time that their faith is a fraud, they're not forgiven. You didn't have any power to take their sins away. And the Lord isn't obligated to forgive them just because you assured them. That doesn't mean that we put caveats with everything. There are some people who do that. I, I kind of understand that. But we don't do that. I put my faith in Jesus. I love him. I love his word. I want to grow in him. Am I forgiven? Well, I don't know. It all depends. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to loose them. Yes, absolutely. If you've done that, then he has forgiven you and you're free. You're free. But what happens if, if that person or simply somebody else who has denied Christ proves that they're not saved? We have a responsibility to tell those that we believed to be still in their sins, that they're bound. You're still in your sins. You're still a slave to sin. You're still under the judgment of God. This isn't such a, a major issue with, with the average unbeliever who says, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe any of that. You can say it, but it's really kind of obvious from the situation. What it really comes down to is the person who's claimed to be a Christian but now all of a sudden has abandoned Christ. They're denying it. They have no love for the word, no love for the body. They have no desire to grow in holiness or righteousness. They, they just wear their faith as a cross on their, around their neck. It's simply decorative. And I think that there is some amount of responsibility to say you're still in your sins. Some are going to say, who are you to judge another? And, and we have to be quick to say, I'm nobody to judge anybody. I don't have any power. I don't have any authority in this. I'm simply to announce what I'm told to announce. Somebody who has a reasonable confession of faith, not a perfect confession, but a reasonable confession of faith, we can assure them of forgiveness. Somebody who does not have a reasonable confession, we have to say, for the sake of their soul, I don't think you're a Christian. 
That's not judgment. In our world, people would say that's unkind and that's judgmental. It's not. I don't want them to go to hell. And it's not that I get or you get uh, extra points when we get to heaven because we talk somebody out of going to hell. It's about them. It's about their soul. If anybody does ask you this, uh, who are you to judge another? Feel free to answer as you feel is appropriate, but, but think about this. You could also say, well, who am I to affirm anybody? If I'm nobody to judge the faith of somebody else, who am I to affirm the faith of someone else? If I'm not God with the power to condemn somebody to hell, why would you think I'm God with the power to forgive? And yet we are called to affirm. We are called to bless one another. According to scripture, according to the gospel. And Lord Jesus, I ask that as we go, we would remember who holds the power in your kingdom, that it's you. And I ask, Lord, that we would remember the tremendous privilege that you have given us of assuring one another that we've been set free and bound to you for all eternity and that we would remember the responsibility that we have to proclaim the gospel fully and honestly, not to give false assurance, but to beg those who reject to repent and to believe the gospel and be saved. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us today and ask for your hand to be upon them with kindness and gentleness. And in your precious name we pray. Amen.